0: Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Happy Wednesday. A lot of things to get into here, so I'm just going to dive in. Before I get to some more specific stories and a few more specific articles, I want to sort of riff a little bit about this critical race theory stuff that continues, of course, to be pervasive and continues to find its way into classrooms and school boards and administrative overreach and, and you name it the the critical race theory stuff okay as most of us probably know at this point isn't new it's just not a new thing this has been around for quite some time and it isn't something that's going away unless of course as i've covered here on this podcast if states start to make it illegal by passing legislation to get rid of it and again the states that are passing this legislation to get rid of it, both in K-12 school environments, uh, higher ed environments, or even workplace environments, just your average workplace environments within that particular state. Those states are further along and clearly more mature than the ones that aren't. So that's number one. And again, that seems to be the solution. The solution has to be a legal one. And again the only defense in that case for the people that support critical race theory is that well it's free speech. We're allowed free speech and we're allowed this and we're allowed that. The problem is is that if what they if if that's true, which it ne- isn't necessarily true because it's teaching hate, then that of course is breaking the rules of all their contracts and, and their codes of conduct, uh, codes of conduct obligations because that's not what's supposed to be happening or coming out of the mouths of teachers and administrators. That's just not, that's not supposed to be the case. Creating a hostile work environment or a hostile learning environment goes against every contractual obligation that every educator has. So that's, that's number one. Number two, more specifically, the business of teaching Young teachers or those that want to be teachers or even at the, at the specific K-12 school level teaching students to be political activists or militants or whatever, that also isn't new. This has been around for a very long time. It's, it's consistently reported on from state to state or district to district as if it's a new thing. Oh, look over here at this school district that's doing this. Or, oh, look over there at this school district that's doing this. Watch out, critical race theory, they're teaching to be militants. That's not new. I'm not saying it's a good thing. Clearly it's not. It has no business within a school-based environment. But reporting on it as if it's a new thing is short-sighted, and the individuals I think that are doing that. Again, I think they're doing a service by letting people know that this is in fact happening, and sometimes it's happening closer to home than one people want to admit. But sort of this overall umbrella approach of acting as if it's a new thing—it's it, not new. This has been written about for at least a century. It's been around a very long time. Um more specifically, one of the tactics that that is used consistently, and it's also used among school teachers and administrators themselves between one another, and it's very uh, deviant behavior. But this particular uh, occurrence of this, again, it made the national news, but you have to understand this happens all of the time. So just because something makes the national news once doesn't mean that, that was it was some one-off. This happens constantly. In countless districts all over the United States, and it's been happening since cell phones and social media. In fact, it's even happened, it <laughs> even happened before that, with simply writing a particular note and leaving a note behind, or you know something trivial like that. But it was a female high school student. Um, I believe she's in high school, and she was in 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 the Saint Paul, Minnesota area, and. Uh, there were students in her school, black students, who went after her, Who w- and she was white, who went after her for uh, claiming that she was making racist comments about them online or something of that nature, in particular, I think, on Instagram. They made the whole thing up. The entire thing was, was fake. So they were Im- – I mean, that's computer fraud, I believe, if you think about it. you You claim to be someone you're not – and then you disparage somebody online, and then you attempt to get them either kicked out of the school or suspended as a result of falsifying words and actions and behaviors that never actually took place. So, I can tell you firsthand that the business of schools investigating such such an occurrence, this innocent white female was most certainly viewed as being guilty before proven innocent. I'm sure she was questioned by district investigators or administrators within the school building, which, by the way, that can't happen without a parent present. And in most cases, unfortunately, they will uh, interview or record children without parents being present when, when the child is being investigated for something. So you need to keep that in mind. If you're a parent out there and you're listening to this, Uh, Your child cannot be recorded in an investigative manner by an adult without you present. That right there breaks their contractual obligations as well, along with countless policies regarding recording minors without a parent present, um, in particular for, for investigative purposes. But she was most certainly viewed as being guilty before proven innocent. And then once proven innocent, the question then becomes, of course, well, what's the consequence for the individual who, who did it in the first place? And the fact is, is that there should be only one consequence, and that's expulsion. You expel them, not just from the building, but from the district as a whole, the entire district, because you have to think of that level of deviancy. And uh, I would, I would, I mean, it's certainly psychotic to say the least to be able to go to those extents and and want to do that to to uh, a fellow peer so to speak although they may be the same age but they clearly don't agree on anything but that right there again that kind of behavior the reason that it persists and the reason that they that behaviors like it always persist among minors in school-based environments is because the consequence is never serious enough based on the behavior that's taken place or the act that's taken place. They have to expel that person. But even getting a student expelled from a building is a difficult task, and it takes time. It's, a, it's an entire paperwork process, repeated behavior, and in many cases, some of the most violent offenders, almost regardless of the particular act that they engage in, have full-blown excuses, sort of paperwork-slash- faux medical excuses as to why they can't be expelled. So they'll use a phrase called, um, it's a manifestation of their disability, quote unquote, which basically says, we know that they do this kind of thing. We know they have these kind of behaviors. We know that they behave this way. They have a pattern of doing so. We can't get rid of them because we know that they're capable of doing this. I mean, think about the illogical nature of that. We know that, I mean, and then just kick it up to them being a murderer. We know they're a murderer. We know they kill people. We know they seek out victims to hurt, maim, kill, whatever. But, you know, we have to keep them here because they have to remain in school. The fact is, is that for every quote-unquote troublemaker or, or criminal that finds their way into a school building, breaks rules, regulations, if not laws, There's at least five other students in that general vicinity, in that general neighborhood, city, town, whatever, that would love to be a student in that building. So this business of, well, we have to keep our enrollment numbers at a particular level. Mm -hmm. School enrollment numbers change and usually increase every single year. They're dramatically dropping right now because more and more people are homeschooling. More and more people are taking their kids out of public school and putting them in private or charter schools that are focused on reading, writing, arithmetic, and uh, academic rigor. But again, this notion of we can't discipline because, and then there's just a list of excuses. To bring this back around to critical race theory, it shouldn't shock anybody that they would scream racism as an excuse and say, well, we can't get rid of them because, you know, it might look like we're racist or there's racism involved or whatever. That right there should tell you that it's not even an argument. When it comes to the lack of sanity among these individuals, because if they're just screaming racism at the top of their lungs, then they have no idea what they're talking about, and these people can't be re- reasoned with. They can't. You can't. Uh, you, you can't expect to change their minds. They are just going to be the way that they are. So, I want you to keep this in mind. Just because you might not think that critical race theory, quote unquote, or variants of it haven't made their way into your child's classroom yet doesn't mean for a moment that the school board isn't thinking about how to do that because almost every school board in America is thinking about how can we intertwine this into our curriculum our district's curriculum or even worse state standards once they make their way into state standards it's game over it's absolutely game over after that and again the generational impact of all of this taking place is time lost. That's the that's the big picture. It's just time wasted. We're going to have dumber students going to college and university settings if they even continue to do that. We're going to have dumber people entering the workforce. And it's just it's just going to be a lack of individual thought, intellect, investigation, connecting the dots, uh, individuality as a whole among a a, a populace for generations to come if families don't start taking control back regarding their child's education. And I've advocated for this in the past, and I will always advocate for this. I do not recommend under any circumstance that – and people will disagree, that's fine – but I don't recommend that they participate in extracurricular sports or extracurricular activities, in particular, if they're associated with the school itself. The reason I say that is because one thing has nothing to do with the other. If they want to play a game or they want to do something else that's not associated with the school, that's, that's fine. That's, you, know, that's, uh, you, can, you can rationalize it up to exercise if you want. But the business of them participating in these school-related activities or these school-related sports, again, bleeds into the critical race theory because even that is making its way into sporting events, which leads me ultimately to this first story, which you know piggybacks basically on, on what I was just saying. The NBA, National Basketball Association, um, is, is losing viewers. Don't think for a minute that that's just the NBA. It's every sport. Every sport is losing viewers. Every sport is losing money, participants, and even players themselves, and individuals who want to play those sports for a living. Because again, this trickles all the way back down to the K-12 level. People at the K-12 level are, are witnessing this, they're seeing this, and they're saying, you know what? I can throw a ball a really long way, or you know what, I'm really fast, or I can, I can do this, and I know the ins and outs of this particular game and whatever, and I'm coachable, and I'm whatever I am. Even they, as, as minors, are, are recognizing that they don't want anything to do with it as an adult, which then is like throwing a ball up against a brick wall, and then it comes back and hits you right between the eyes. It's inevitable that they will eventually reflect on that ball bouncing back and hitting them in the face. Wait a minute, why am I playing it now then? If I don't think I'm going to do it as an adult, why on earth would I play it now? I immediately, of course, came across that thought myself when I was in grade school. I thought, I'm not going to be a professional soccer player. Who gives a damn? Why am I playing? I'm not going to be a professional baseball player. Why, Why am I still playing? And then I just quit. And then I started doing other more interesting things. I started seeing new things. I started to just do new things. And when you, anytime you put something down, you're going to pick something else up. The question is, is what else are you going to pick up? So I think that it's a culture, it's a massive cultural shift. I think it's a good cultural shift that less and less people are attending sports. Um, But again, I've spoken about it in the past, I know, but I just wanted to mention it again because... The NBA ratings, statistics, and people attending and whatever uh, is, is not only dropping, but it's also dropping not just because of the critical race theory injection that has happened within all of those organizations and those avenues, but it's happening because the populace doesn't like it. And if you think about it, the populace is the customer. And if the business isn't producing a product that the customer is interested in anymore, what does the customer do? The customer leaves. They just leave and they don't give it their thought or their mind anymore. And again, they usually don't come back. They usually don't come back. They don't say, well, it was bad for five years, but maybe it's better now. And then they go back. No, that's not how it works. It's usually almost always um, a permanent decision that gets made. So along those same lines, again, this seems to be a very, I don't know, talking about a lot of physical fitness here, but this particular story comes from the Federalist, and I thought this is interesting too, because again, it shows sort of the narrow-mindedness of a large group of individuals, and the answer to this, again, is very simple, but um, I'm, I'm shocked that people continue to participate in such things. It's titled, Science Proves Fitness Protects Against covid but my school makes it impossible to work out. So this is written by someone, a college student potentially. Um, it's, a, it's a long article. I'm not going to read through the entire thing, but it's, it's very telling. And again, after reading that, and here's the subtitle, by the way, it says, quote, School administrators and COVID advisors need to follow the science, quote-unquote, and stop discouraging students from trying to live healthy lifestyles. Now <laughs> again, there's a lot there, just in that just in the title and the subtitle. First of all, if you're looking to a school to keep yourself healthy, you're a fool. It's not up to the school to keep you healthy, that's up to you. That's number 1. Number 2, more specifically, if you're looking to a school which is government, if you're looking to them to create a gym or a quote-unquote healthy environment for you to exercise in, and they don't, first of all, you shouldn't look for them to do that anyway. That's number one. Number two, if they don't do it, what do you think you should do then? Because I can reach into my pocket, pull out my cell phone, click on the Beach Body Exercise app where I pay, let's see, what is it, 20 bucks a month to view every single exercise program that they have on their app. And I've been using those programs now for well over a decade. So again, that should tell people that if you're looking to government or you're saying to yourself something like, Planet Fitness makes me wear a mask when I exercise, you know, uh, I hate Planet Fitness. Where am I going to start exercising now? Most people don't go to Planet Fitness. I hate to break it to you, but that's the case. Most people don't. Most people exercise within the confines of their own home. They use one of the instructional methods like the beach body workouts or they do something else. Again, if you're asking government to provide you a space so that you can exercise freely and take care of your quote-unquote health. You're asking government for something that you should be responsible for, that you should be responsible for as an individual. So again, this particular student who's writing this, I find it interesting that, again, they're sort of claiming the government didn't give me what I wanted approach, rather than just saying... Who cares? This is what government does. Gov- government promises you one thing and then they spit in your face or they spit on the back of your head when you turn around and you start walking away. That That's the way that it always goes. So here's a couple of pieces from this particular article. I'm just going to kind of jump to the middle here. Um, scientific data proves, quote, that being fit and healthy is essential to combating uh, COVID-19. We also know that individuals with lifestyle-related comorbidities such as obesity and type 2 diabetes are far more likely to be hospitalized or die from the Wuhan virus. Over the the last pandemic-ridden year, 42% of U.S. adults reported gaining an average of 29 pounds and 10% said they gained more than 50 pounds. Yet universities like Princeton, Columbia, Harvard, and University of Chicago, and many others, are actively discouraging students from being healthy by making working out as difficult as possible. Students who attend New York University and University of California at Los Angeles can't even go to the gym because they have been completely shut down. Universities are forcing students to wear masks at all times, including in, indoor and in outdoor and indoor athletic facilities even when they are performing strenuous physical activity like sprints. Now, we've been over that before with other examples. But again, it's, it, it, she's, she's, bless her heart, but she's commenting on the obvious. She just said Princeton, Columbia, Harvard, and University of Chicago, and then New York University and the University of California at Los Angeles. If you're looking at those institutions to make good decisions for you, you're looking in the wrong place. You're looking in the wrong place. The responsibility lies with the individual, not an institution. When people start trusting their institutions like this to take care of every facet of their lives, they will let you down every single time. So it just shocks me that it shocks me that that was published. Although they probably know somebody, which is why it got published. Um, It's it's just painfully obvious. But again if you're trusting government, you're trusting the wrong person. That's essentially what what that means. Uh, Here's the last thing I wanted to bring up, or well, maybe not the last, but certainly in this little section here. This is from Breitbart, and it's titled, New York Elementary School Principal Accused of Sexually Abusing Nine Male Students. There's some audio here. I'm going to play it. Here we go.
1: There's a local school principal in jail tonight and facing disturbing
0: charges.
2: Kirk Ashton, the principal at Hilton's Northwood Elementary School, is accused of sexually abusing multiple children. He was arraigned this evening at Greasetown Court. This is video of police walking him out of the town court, you can see he's in handcuffs and then placing him into a squad car. All of this happening this evening. Jack Watson joins us now live from outside Greystown Court where Ashton was arraigned tonight. Jack, what did we learn? Adam, tonight we
1: learned that these are very serious charges dating back several years, and prosecutors say there are nine separate male victims. We are told the charges include course of sexual conduct against a child in the second degree and sexual abuse in the first degree. Those are both violent felonies. The Hilton School District also releasing a statement tonight saying in part, quote, our primary concern is for our students. Our district crisis team has formulated a plan to support students and staff, and counselors are available for." Students throughout the day. Last week, the district told its community it placed Ashton on administrative leave from his position as Northwood Elementary School principal. What are you? What you are seeing now is video we took of Ashton during a separate story years ago. An assistant DA with the Monroe County District Attorney's Office spoke with us about the charges tonight.
2: Certainly anytime um, someone is in authority, um, is charged with something like this, it would be a shock. But I think what um, certainly Amanda and I know for doing this for a long time, that the majority, the overwhelming majority of um, sex abuse happens from someone that children know, love and trust.
1: And in their statement tonight, the Hilton School District also said that it was working closely with the Bavona Child Advocacy Center. Again, the assistant district attorney saying they are there are nine separate victims here, but would not speculate on how many total there would be. Live in Greece, Jack Watson,
2: News 8. All right, Jack, thank you. Now a few other notes here about this case. Ashton is being held on five hundred thousand dollars bail, one million dollars bond. Eight orders of protection were issued for the alleged victims this evening. Also, Kirk Ashton has been a principal at Northwood since 2004. He was assistant principal at an elementary school in Rush Henrietta before that and a special ed teacher at Crestwood Children's Center before that.
0: Did you hear what that district attorney said? That that particular sentence was shocking to me that that actually came out of her mouth she said that it's shocking that someone in authority in a position of authority would behave in such a way unless i misheard that but again i did i didn't that's exactly what she said she said it's shocking that when it, it when it comes from a person who's in a position of authority and then of course she followed up by saying but usually abuse victims are abused by individuals who are close to them in in one nature or another so it shouldn't shock anybody then it shouldn't shock anybody it also said in that in that report that this that that such crimes like this stretched back years multiple years with multiple victims I've I've spoken on this briefly in the past, but the, the old Me Too movement, quote unquote, not only blew up in the faces of the celebrities that were that were pushing it, it blew up in the American K-12 school system like you wouldn't believe. That is the that really is the hidden story in the Me Too movement is how many teachers and administrators in American schools got sucked up as a result of being caught years after the fact, where they were either being sexually groomed or abused or students were being come on to by, by their teachers or administrators. I mean, again, I've, I've mentioned some specific cases of individuals that I used to work with where that was in fact the case. Students are now in their 20s. Um, and, and they're older, and then they look backwards, and they go, wait a minute, those teachers were doing this to me. And then they get online, and then they start bashing those teachers publicly. And then maybe they send some stuff to the local police department, and then before you know it, that teacher or administrator is finally arrested. And rightfully so. And the sad part, too, is, is that when they're arrested, they're usually arrested while they're still abusing somebody else. So it's not just a matter of knowing your teachers, as I've said in the past. It's a matter of knowing your administrators as well. Because, again, I've mentioned this and written about it at length. When you have a congregate or congregation, we'll say, of of minors all congregating in one area, the likelihood of you having an abuser working in that area is remarkably high it's basic statistics, it's basic math. You increase the number of minors in an area and then you employ adults to work in said environment, it's inevitable that you're going to have an abuser. So this is one of those subjects that unfortunately doesn't get discussed often enough within school environments themselves. You're not going to hear administrators give talks and lectures to students about what they should do if a staff member does something inappropriate with them. Very rarely are you going to have an administrator stand up in front of a group of students and say, hey, look, if a teacher here or an administrator here does this or this or this, you need to tell them to stop and then you need to come and get us. You need to tell your parents and then you need to come and get us. You need to do this and then you need to do that. Schools don't do that. They don't do that. They very rarely, if ever, educate the very minors themselves, or even the parents for that fact, um, about the likelihood or potential for someone working in that building to do something inappropriate. They just don't do it. The same thing typically doesn't happen when it comes to administrators or school psychologists or school counselors in a faculty meeting bringing up such behaviors when it comes to uh, speaking at, again, just the faculty and saying, look, if somebody in this room is keen on abusing students or abusing minors or grooming them, you need to get out of this building now. Because what we're going to do is, is we're going to start educating all of you on what those signs and symptoms are, what those signs and those, you know, warning signs, so to speak, look like, what those behaviors look like among adults toward minors. Because, I mean, if they did that, you would have staff members going after staff members. And that does happen, by the way. I mean, I did that. I sat in a faculty meeting once a long, long, long time ago. And the school psychologist who I worked with closely and was a very nice woman, she she, um, and very knowledgeable, she would give a, I think it was either a state mandated talk or whatever it was to our faculty about abuse among minors and how to report and where to go and whatever else. The problem is, is that there's very little discussion when it comes to, well, what if it's a fellow coworker doing the abusing? What's the process? And the sort of order of operations that a staff member is supposed to take when it comes to that, that you know, those things occurring. Because those things occur all of the time. The, the, the main obstacle, of course, is that when people report, as I have, against my own coworkers for abusing students, including administrators, very often they'll come right after you. They'll come right after you. So I've written about this at length, and I'll just say it very briefly without bloviating too much. You tell the parents of the minor if you suspect that the individual is being abused or groomed, and then you go to the police. You bypass administration. You bypass them as as quickly as humanly possible. Now, you can tell administration, but my recommendation is you tell them last. Get, Get the parent involved immediately, call them, then hang up. Then call the police, tell them about it, then hang up. And then you go and you tell the administrator. Because of those three groups the likelihood of one of those groups trying to hide it is pretty high. And the likelihood of the administrator or teacher trying to hide it is actually higher. Now, there's two more things I want to mention here. And the first is Vanessa Hurst, who has been a guest in this podcast before and has sent me a great deal of information regarding the school district where she resides in Nelson County, Kentucky the entire school district has gone far left hard communist and here's what they're doing and again i i might have to have her back on the on the on the program to say the least to further describe this but she sent me a bunch of documents basically what it outlines is that they're keeping a lot of information from the public and they're keeping a lot of information from teachers and then they're surprising teachers with what their plans are here for the future. And one of those plans basically involves this. And again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and I'm not providing the entire, the entire picture here because there's a lot of content. But they're eliminating their middle schools and they're joining their, their middle schools and their high schools together. So their middle schools and high schools are now going to be all in the same building, I guess, from grades six through 12. And then what they're doing with the elementary schools is they're doing nothing but career preparedness for their elementary schools. Um, it's, it's absolutely bizarre. And so here's one email she sent me. She said, So this was sprung on teachers and staff last minute. Uh, Planning they must have had a very tight lid on it. The board meeting discussion for this is tomorrow, which would be today, Wednesday. Um, Teachers got the email today. It was leaked to the parents, and finally, people are beginning to rally. Without knowing particulars, from what I gather, they want to merge middle and high school, get rid of art, music, and STEM in elementary school, and replace them with career ready classes. Unbelievable. If I didn't already know, what I know, I'd be shocked. And it is absolutely nuts. So uh, there's a particular Facebook post here. It's uh, f- from what I assume is a parent. It says PSA. If you are a parent in the Nelson County School system tomorrow night, there's a very important board meeting about the future of our schools. Please come and voice your opinions. Come to Cox Creek School at 5:30. Two things that I have heard that stand out is one, the merge of middle and high schools together, and two, the cut of STEM program in elementary schools and the music program to focus on more career-based studies in elementary school. Because we all grew up and did what we planned to do in third grade, right? Uh, It says, please come voice your opinions. Our kids need these programs, and and our middle schoolers do not need to be exposed to high school activities. No doubt about it. So I simply asked a couple of questions. Um, I said, there's no way that this kind of approach and this kind of a communistic approach is coming from just people within. There's something else going on here. There's They're clearly being funded from the outside. The superintendent must have nefarious ties somewhere. So give this a listen here. And I, I asked those questions to Vanessa. She got back to me. She said... I don't think I told you, but my friend did some digging and found that our superintendent went to Columbia University. Quick thing about Columbia University. Columbia University was arguably the home base for the, uh, I would call it the American wing of the Frankfurt School back in the early 1900s. So they are as radical as radical gets. And so that's where their superintendent apparently comes from. Uh, he taught high school in the Bronx one to two years and then went to Chicago to teach at a charter school, Perspectives Academy. Right after that, he came home to teach high school at Thomas Nelson. Then a few years later, became superintendent. Now think about that. I mean, very little teaching experience. And then very little teaching experience outside of the state very little teaching experience inside of his apparent home state and now in his home county and now is the superintendent that approach right there is also the marxist plan of attack in fact i think i read that on an antifa play on the antifa playbook the antifa manual it basically says that exact same thing it says Graduate as a student, and if you want to become a teacher, become an activist. Leave your area, become a teacher somewhere else, don't teach for too long, and then make sure that you return home to where you actually grew up, and then turn your your hometown and your home school district into a Marxist organization. Um, th- that's, that's right out of the Antifa playbook. And then she says this, She says, quote, I did some digging on Perspectives Academy. Web archives showed their earliest website snapshot, 2012. The school was funded by Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It's an Obama charter school. So there's more likely the big fish that you were talking about. I just don't have the missing puzzle piece called evidence. This is all the evidence you need. This should be all the evidence that a person needs to figure out what this person's ideology is, what the superintendent's ideology is, and where this exact school district is planning on going. This person is nuts; they're one hundred percent nuts. And the only way to get that school district back is one way and one way only. And you have to take over the school board. Take over the school board. You fire the superintendent. I mean, you. You. I mean, there has to be a full-blown coup in that school district in order to change it. And then you go back to the way that things were. You go back to reading, writing, arithmetic. You go back to hiring teachers to teach one subject. And then you go back to having the separate buildings. This business, again, I could do an entire episode on the business of combining middle schools and high schools and the the danger that that creates the danger that that creates is going to is I can't uh, I can't describe it right now because there's just too much there's too many problems with that far too many so I'm gonna have more probably in the future on this uh, stick around for Friday I've also got on Friday a very interesting letter to read that was just tossed my way here at the end of this episode but this episode's already far too long but it's an excellent letter on exactly what you should do if you're going to pull your students out of a school and the kind of letter that you should send um, the top brass, so to speak, the superintendent and, and even the school teachers and everybody else and just let everybody know what's going on in a school district. But I'll, I'll read that letter on Friday and uh, see you then. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information.